I next met with Dr. Evan Lipson, and to begin, he commented on an unusual skin cancer that also appears to be sensitive to checkpoint inhibitor therapy. Merkel cell carcinoma is a rare but deadly skin cancer. We only see it maybe 1,500 or 2,000 cases a year. So the Merkel cell carcinoma itself is associated with a virus, a Merkel cell polyomavirus, in probably close to 100% of cases. In some patients, it occurs in the setting of immunocompromised, so patients that have been on therapy, for example, for a rheumatologic illness where they've required immunosuppression, or in patients with organ transplantation, or other patients with chronic lymphocytic leukemia, et cetera. In any case, because it's virally based and because the sort of immune milieu we thought was probably active, we undertook a study to look at the association between the presence of the virus in the tumor and expression of PDL1, which is now associated with immunoactivation. And in fact, we saw that there was a direct correlation, and not just under the microscope, but also clinically, patients that expressed PDL1 infected better, their survival was better than patients that did not express PDL1. And so what that tells us is that with immunoactivation, perhaps as a result of this virus, patients are experiencing improved outcomes as a result. And therefore, if you were to augment that immune response, perhaps you, know, you would see an even greater ability of the immune system to get on top of the tumor. And so what is currently being explored is just exactly that. It's using either anti-PD-1 or anti-PD-L1 molecules in patients with unresectable or metastatic Merkel cell carcinoma. And so anecdotally, we've seen some nice responses, and it's not just Merkel cell that's being explored. It's other virally related cancers. So as you mentioned, HPV-related head and neck squamous cell carcinoma, some of the hepatitis-related cancers, EBV-related malignancies, and any of the virally related tumors that are thought to sort of be immunogenic. Although my understanding is that at least in head and neck, the HPV-associated cancers seem to not respond anymore. I mean, they respond well, but similarly to the others, which I guess are more smoke-related, so it's just a different mechanism. Yeah, it's a curious finding, and I think many of us scratched our heads when we saw those results that the HPV-related cancers weren't markedly different in terms of response to checkpoint blockade than the non-HPV-related cancers. And what you say may be true, that the cancers that were not HPV-related may have been, in fact, related to smoking or other insult, and therefore the mutation burden or immunoactivation of the microenvironment was enough so that PD-1 or PD-L1 antibody was effective. Getting back to the Merkel cell, I know it occurs on sun-exposed area, but what would be a typical case in terms of how it would present? I think adjuvant therapy is used, and when people have recurrence and death, what's the sort of natural history? Yeah, you're right. Merkel cell carcinoma in general, we see on older individuals, oftentimes it's a cancer of the head and neck or sun-exposed areas. Occasionally, it will present as sort of a pearly-like papule. Oftentimes, patients will come in and say, I thought I had a pimple and it just didn't go away after a while. It's known to be a very locally aggressive cancer and also to travel in the way that melanoma does, which is through lymph nodes and then into organs through the bloodstream. So oftentimes patients will come in and undergo a wide local excision for a Merkel cell carcinoma along with a sentinel lymph node biopsy. Depending on where the location of the tumor was and whether there was a sentinel node activity, sometimes adjuvant radiotherapy is used. What makes this cancer so deadly is that oftentimes, despite having been treated appropriately, the cancer returns either in the local lymph node basin, the location of the primary tumor, or in a distant site in an organ somewhere. 
And so what we're using in the standard armamentarium would be platinum-based chemotherapies. So cisplatin, for example, and VP16. The trouble with those regimens is that the efficacy, although relatively high up front, tends to decrease significantly when the tumor develops resistance. And so in the first probably year or so of that therapy, we see many of our patients relapse and become resistant to uh, platinum-based chemo. So hence the need for some new and innovative therapies. So nowadays when people say anecdotally, you know, useful responses have been observed, I pay a lot more attention than in the past. So sounds encouraging. Just one more thing before we get into another topic. I'm curious what your thoughts are about why you see such responses in Hodgkin lymphoma. Do you think that Hodgkin lymphoma is, I mean, primarily a viral-related disease, or are there some immunologic mechanisms? Any personal speculations? It could be any one of those things, I think. Like I say, the common denominator of many of these tumors is the presence of inflammation and neoantigens that allow for immune system recognition. And as you say, a viral relationship with Hodgkin's may be enough to create an immune active tumor microenvironment such that a PD-1 blockade or PD-L1 blockade can inhibit the inhibition, as they say. So release the brakes on T cell activation. So I want to move on to another part of your research that I think is really interesting, which is the use of checkpoint inhibitors, I guess primarily in patients with melanoma, in sort of unusual populations, for example, hepatitis, liver transplant, other organ transplant, HIV. You've got a bunch of publications looking at these things. And it also ties into something I've been trying to get a better feel for, which is what is the risk of using these checkpoint inhibitors in patients with coexisting diseases that might be problematic, not just the ones we talked about, but also prior autoimmune disease. Can you talk about globally some of the things that you've looked at and what you think they mean? Yeah, it's a great question and an area of interest for us, for sure. So the use of checkpoint blockade agents in the clinical trials that have been done up until this point have in general excluded patients who have had any immunologic comorbidity. So, for example, patients that have been on long-term immunosuppression for autoimmune disease, patients who have undergone organ transplantation and have needed corticosteroids, anybody whose immune system isn't basically normal at baseline. And what that's done has, A, allowed us to develop these drugs in a patient population where we can clearly identify the benefits, but it's also prevented us from understanding more about how these drugs work in patients with additional comorbidities. So with regard to hepatitis, we published a case series last year looking at patients who had had either hepatitis B or hepatitis C and what would be the impact of using ipilimumab on that patient population. So as you know, in patients who are given ipilimumab or pembrolizumab or nivolumab, any of the checkpoint molecules, one of the risks of doing so is an autoimmune hepatitis, so an immune-based adverse event that affects the liver. And the question was, in a patient with pre-existing liver disease, hepatitis, viral hepatitis, would you worsen that? Would that be a comorbidity that would become a contraindication to administration of these checkpoint molecules, checkpoint inhibitors? And so what we showed was that in these cases, for the most part, 
the patient's hepatitis was stable, the viral hepatitis was stable, the patients tolerated the drug well, and that the rates of LFT, liver function testing abnormality, were about what you'd expect with a normal population. And so it's a small study for sure, it's only nine patients, but it suggests that perhaps in patients with an underlying viral hepatitis that you could safely use ipilimumab with the appropriate monitoring. And do we know what the immunologic status is of a typical patient with hepatitis? Or is it just a question of people with normal immune functions that just have an overwhelming infection? Well, that's a good question. I think it probably runs the gamut to a degree. And so patients with hepatitis are, as you know, across the spectrum. So in some cases where patients had hepatitis C, it's a chronic disease in some patients, and it doesn't probably affect the ability of the immune system to do what needs to be done with regard to tumor regression when a checkpoint inhibitor is administered. In other patients whose liver function, for example, is perhaps more compromised, it's less clear about the safety of giving any of these drugs in that setting, only because the patients like that perhaps are not as well suited to tolerate what might be an immune-related adverse event from a drug like Ipi or Nevo or Pembro. What about your work on patients who've had, you know, you had one patient with a liver transplant, I think some other transplants, and particularly, I mean, can you give a post-transplant immune suppressive agent and a checkpoint inhibitor together? Well, that's a good question. The initial patients for whom this was tried, we published in early 2014, and this report was on two individuals, both with metastatic melanoma, who had previously undergone kidney transplantation. And so the first thing we did was to decrease the level of immunosuppression to just five milligrams of prednisone daily. And we monitored the patient's kidney function and made sure that there wasn't rejection just simply based on the decrease in the immunosuppression. And then we administered ipilimumab very carefully with close monitoring. And as it turns out, neither of the patient's renal allografts were impacted by the ipilimumab administration. And both of the patients eventually demonstrated a response to the ipi therapy, an anti-tumor response to the ipi therapy. So what this suggests is that perhaps the patients whose immune systems have been compromised with perhaps years of immunosuppression still have the capacity to respond when checkpoint inhibitors are administered. And then secondly, that it raises the question about which of the checkpoint inhibitors would be safe to administer in patients who have undergone transplantation. It's a small study, only two patients, but it does raise the possibility that perhaps giving ipilimumab could be reasonably safe in patients with kidney transplants. The other case that you referred to is a patient with a liver transplant who underwent ipilimumab therapy who also did not experience rejection of the allograft. Again, perhaps suggesting that ipilimumab's mechanism of action is safe in the setting of liver transplantation. But I would stress that these are very small trials. These are simply case reports. And by no means do they suggest that across the board, checkpoint blockade is safe in patients with liver transplantation. This is a fertile area for research in the future, though. I guess just clinically, though, when you think about it, you're in a desperate situation. You have a patient who has an incurable clinical situation where you know there's a therapy out there that might offer great benefits. So I guess you end up taking risks that you wouldn't necessarily take otherwise. Yeah, and I think it's important to have a conversation with your patient about that. And certainly in patients with a kidney transplant, it's a little bit easier because the alternative is dialysis. 
And some patients have certainly said to me, you know, I'm willing to give up my kidney allograft, even if it means going back on dialysis, if there's a chance that the immune checkpoint therapy you'll give me is going to treat my cancer. It's a little bit different when it's a heart transplant or a liver transplant, you know, an organ for which there is no external replacement. So a couple other areas of your search interest I wanted to ask you about. One, sort of the general topic of response assessment to checkpoint inhibitors. And I see there are a couple of things that you're looking at that look really interesting. One, circulating tumor DNA analysis, and the other, the use of PET quantitative assessments. Right. This is a line of investigation that addresses a common issue in patients receiving checkpoint blockade therapy, and that's that in a small but meaningful percentage, maybe 10% of patients, we see that tumors oftentimes will appear to grow on radiology or on clinical exam before later decreasing in size, or that new lesions will seem to appear before later going away. And so you can see what you would think of as a progression before a regression. And this is important to tell your patients, especially patients with melanoma who oftentimes have tumors that they themselves can palpate, where if they come into you three weeks into therapy and say, doc, I think my tumor's growing, you have to reassure them and say, it oftentimes will grow, in fact, before it later regresses. Could I just stop you on that one? Because, of course, that, you know, there are a lot of questions about that in, quote, pseudo-progression. Do we know how often when you see this, it's just progressive disease that, you know, the treatment hasn't caught up with, as opposed to some kind of inflammatory, you know, infiltrate into the tumor that's making it bigger? Yeah, we don't have a good handle yet on how many of the patients in that situation will eventually progress. We know that in a recent trial of nivolumab versus chemotherapy, that a small percentage of patients who were thought to be progressors by traditional resist criteria, which is the criteria we use to determine whether patients have progressed or not on traditional trials using chemotherapy, that small percentage of patients that looked as though they were progressing eventually turned around and did have tumor regressions further on into the study. And so the percentage is small. It's only about 10 or 15%. But it's real, and it's important to let patients know that that's a possibility. And so the investigations that we've been doing with regard to circulating tumor DNA and also using FDG PET scans are to get to that question about how can you predict more accurately a response to these agents early in the course of somebody's therapy. So we undertook a study with patients getting checkpoint blockade agents who had a detectable mutation that was circulating in their bloodstream. So for example, a BRAF mutation that you could detect through a peripheral blood sample or an NRAS mutation detectable the same way. And we looked at the levels of the circulating tumor DNA through time as they were undergoing therapy and what we showed first was that the levels of circulating tumor DNA in general tracked with what their radiologic scans were demonstrating. So patients who were progressing radiologically and clinically, in fact, had rising levels of circulating tumor DNA. The second thing we showed, which was interesting, was that a patient who had undergone a biopsy of a soft tissue lesion had a huge spike in her level of circulating tumor DNA after the biopsy was performed, which stayed elevated for several weeks thereafter. So a perturbation in the tumor environment, in this case a needle biopsy, set loose a large bolus of circulating tumor DNA or circulating tumor material in the circulation. And then thirdly, we had another case of a woman who had locally advanced melanoma with neck lymphadenopathy that was unresectable. 
and she was started on ipilimumab, and over the course of her therapy, her clinical evaluation suggested that over time her disease was worsening, but in fact her circulating tumor DNA dropped to an undetectable level about midway through her therapy. And so that drop in her circulating tumor DNA, in fact, predicted her later response. So it was an indicator early on that, in fact, perhaps she was going to respond. And lo and behold, given her more time on therapy, she did, in fact, have a nice complete response. Yeah, I just started hearing about this. I heard about in lung cancer with EGFR mutant tumors. You know, it'd be great if it could be a tumor marker. But going back to your patient with a biopsy, what do you think happened? Do you think a needle biopsy actually caused the release of it directly or some kind of immune thing or what? That's a great question, and I think it's worth exploring what is the relationship between a locally destructive therapy like a needle biopsy or cryotherapy or stereotactic radiosurgery to a lesion and what it allows the immune system to do. So could one irradiate or in another way destroy a lesion that's accessible, thereby expressing or releasing tumor antigens and allowing the immune system to perhaps become more aware of the neoantigens involved in that particular tumor. So it's not clear what exactly the mechanism was for the release of the circulating tumor DNA, but I think it does suggest that perhaps looking at a combination of those therapies where a local therapy that's tumor destructive is applied in combination with an immune agent. Actually, it sounds a little scary. I mean, you know, there was always this stuff, you know, a long time ago about the concept of when you biopsy and somehow releasing tumor cells or whatever, but I guess, to be continued. What about PET scanning? That always made a lot of sense to me. What have you seen? The PET scanning is an interesting strategy for looking at immune-based regimens. It does have its limits, though, primarily that when we're looking at FDG avidity on PET scan, it's very difficult to differentiate between immunoactivity and tumor growth. And so both of those are highly metabolically active processes. And so when a tumor is taking up fluorodeoxyglucose, which is the agent used in the PET scan, it's not clear whether it's doing so because there is greater immunoactivation in the tumor site and therefore greater metabolic activity or because the tumor is growing. So we, in conjunction with our nuclear medicine colleagues at Hopkins, embarked upon a trial looking at various ways to interpret the data that one gets from a PET scan. And we're currently trying to assess whether using specific metrics, various ways of measuring the data we get could help us determine early in the course of therapy, perhaps after two cycles, say, two doses of therapy, whether someone will, in fact, at some point be a responder. Do you know enough at this point to be encouraged or discouraged? We don't know enough yet to have a handle on where this is going to go. I think what has come out in the literature more recently from other groups has suggested that perhaps PET could be useful in that setting, although I think it's still an open question. The trials, these trials have involved just small populations of people. So I want to get into your cases, but one more thing I want to ask you about. Really fascinating couple of papers on effective reinduction therapy with anti-PD-1 antibodies. And in particular, you had a paper in Oncoimmunology, Reorienting the Immune System. You've got a really cool little graphic that I have no idea what it means, but maybe you can explain it to people, at least audio-wise, and what you've learned looking at this issue. Sure. This was a paper that we published as a long-term follow-up to the first in-human trial of nivolumab. 
And what we saw on the first in human trial were objective responses in a few patients that had some notable outcomes that we published in clinical cancer research. So with respect to reinduction therapy, this was a woman with metastatic melanoma who underwent nivolumab therapy and had a nice partial response after some initial therapy. And that partial response persisted for almost a year and a half off of drug. So she was taken off of drug and her partial response persisted. And then her disease recurred. We performed a PET scan and demonstrated that she had a new thoracic lesion. Her disease had recurred. We biopsied that lesion just to make sure. And we reapplied the same drug, nivolumab, to this woman. And in fact, she again achieved a partial response. And this is one of these phenomenon that illustrates the difference between an immunotherapy agent and a chemotherapy agent, where if you had used chemotherapy A in one patient whose disease had then progressed, in general, you wouldn't try that same chemotherapy agent again. You'd switch mechanisms. But in fact, in this patient, what we were able to do is, as I say to my patients, swing the immunologic pendulum back where it belonged. And so we reinvigorated the immune system using the same agent and, in fact, again, reinduced a partial response. What do you think this means biologically? And again, you know, I'm looking at this algorithm in terms of effective anti-tumor immune responses. Well, I think biologically it speaks to the capacity of the immune system to continue to attack tumors, especially with the benefit of some of these checkpoint agents on board. I think clinically the question that it brings up is duration of therapy and is there a role for sort of maintenance checkpoint blockade? So in this patient, for example, or in patients that are long-term responders and then whose tumors progress, would a regimen where every three months or every four months you're giving a single dose of anti-PD-1 or anti-CTLA-4, would that be beneficial in keeping, as I say, the immunologic pendulum where it's supposed to be? Interesting. Let's talk about your cases, and why don't we start out with your 50-year-old man? Sure. This is a 50-year-old gentleman who came to me with rapidly growing BRAF V600E mutant melanoma. He presented with a relatively large disease burden. He had some soft tissue metastasis that were easily palpable. He had some lung metastasis and fortunately had a brain MRI that did not show any evidence of disease there. And so what we discussed with him were possibilities for therapy and concentrated mostly because of his rapidly growing disease and because of his large disease burden on using BRAF and MEK inhibitor therapy. So I think the first point to be made is that the time for mutation testing in a patient like this is often critical. And I say that because in cases where patients present and they need a rapid response to therapy, it can oftentimes take a couple of weeks or more to get an answer about whether the tumor actually contains a BRAF mutation or an NRAS mutation. And so in our practice, in my practice, I try to send BRAF and NRAS and CKIT mutation testing early in the course of patient's evaluation. So in patients, for example, who present with stage 2B or above resected disease, rather than waiting until the disease recurs or if the disease recurs, we try to send that mutation testing early so we have that information in our pocket and can use it if we need it. Just a word about consistency between a primary tumor metastatic disease as regards a BRAF mutation stays the same? 
That's a great question. We have certainly seen differences in mutation results in a primary lesion and a metastatic lesion. Now, whether that has to do with the way that the assay was performed or tumor heterogeneity or the way the sample was collected, it's not entirely clear. It's actually an ongoing area of investigation in some of the groups around the country. What we try to do is to make absolutely sure, in patients where we think that there is no BRAF mutation, or NRAS mutation for that matter, we try to exhaust that possibility, meaning we try to verify that if that therapy is going to be needed. So for example, if we have a primary lesion that was removed five years ago, and we've tested that paraffin-embedded sample and not found a BRAF mutation, I have had patients come in who have had new, easily biopsyable disease, and to make absolutely sure that that is not an option for therapy for them, we might take a second biopsy and retest for BRAF mutations. And have you seen people go from negative to positive in that scenario? We have seen patients who have had two disparate results, for sure. The other time this comes up is when patients have had two melanomas. So this is not uncommon in the melanoma population where patients who are at risk of a melanoma oftentimes wind up with two or three primary melanomas. And sometimes it is unclear which of those melanomas has metastasized. And in that case, oftentimes we will send circulating tumor DNA testing to look for the presence of a BRAF mutation in the circulation. Sometimes that can lead us to an appropriate therapy. So for example, there was a patient who came in to our clinic not too long ago with a pancreas mass that was thought to be a pancreatic adenocarcinoma. He underwent a fine needle aspiration just to confirm the diagnosis, and lo and behold, it was a melanoma. The sample, though, that was taken was not enough of a sample to send BRAF mutation testing or NRAS mutation testing on that tumor sample, and it would have been very invasive to go back in and get another sample. So we sent circulating tumor DNA testing on him. Turns out he has an NRAS mutation. We started him on MEK inhibition and we bought him enough time so that he was able to get onto an immunotherapy with that bridge of targeted therapy in there. So he had a response? He did. He had a nice response to MEK inhibition. That's right. So before we go back to your 50-year-old man, how often do you see NRAS mutations and how effective are MEK inhibitors? Well, the NRAS mutations are probably seen in a quarter or so of patients. The MEK inhibition is still an active area of investigation. One of the reasons it's difficult to say is because the MEK inhibitors are not approved for patients with NRAS mutations, and so it's oftentimes not an option for many patients. So there are studies that show that there's reasonable efficacy with MEK inhibition, but I think that's probably a question yet unanswered. But also, does that mean it's difficult to access these drugs? Yeah, it can be difficult to access MEK inhibitors for patients without a BRAF V600 E or K mutation, just because that's the strict guideline from the FDA. So going back to your 50-year-old man, was he symptomatic from the disease? He was. He was fatigued. He certainly felt the burden of the tumors growing in his lungs. He was very aware of the subcutaneous and soft tissue metastases that he himself could feel. And so we decided for him that we needed to employ BRAF and MEK inhibitor therapy because he really required a rapid response to treatment. And so with immune therapies, the time from initiation of therapy to response can be weeks, eight weeks, six weeks, 12 weeks, or perhaps longer. That's not in everybody, but that can be the case. 
However, in BRAF and MEK therapy, we often, not infrequently, see responses within just a few days or perhaps a week. And so sure enough, in this gentleman, we started him on BRAF and MEK inhibitor therapy right away. Within probably four or five days, he was feeling better. Some of the subcutaneous lesions had started to get smaller, and he went on to have a nice response. What's his current situation, and what specific drugs did you give him? We treated him with dibrafenib and trametinib, the BRAF inhibitor and the MEK inhibitor. And he had a pretty typical course. So we watch out for several side effects when we're using these agents, diarrhea or other GI toxicities, nausea, some vomiting. He had the occasional rash pop up intermittently. Now, he certainly did not experience as much of a rash as many patients do, particularly on the MEK inhibitor. MEK inhibitors in general are known for causing this acneiform, sort of classic acneiform rash. And that was not as much of an issue with him, but we certainly see that in patients very commonly. He had some issues with photosensitivity, also a very common issue. We tell patients when they go outside, even if they think they're in the shade, they need to be covered up, at least wearing sunblock, if not a shirt and pants and a hat. He also developed at some point a cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma, not a serious adverse event, but one that does need to be addressed by dermatology. I didn't know that happened with these particular drugs. It does. It is one of the adverse events that was decreased with the use of the combination therapy. So patients on BRAF inhibitors alone had a higher rate of the development of secondary cutaneous cancers. That was decreased when the combination was used, so BRAF and MEK inhibition together, but it does still happen. But I thought specifically in terms of dibrafenib as opposed to vemurafenib, that dibrafenib is not as much associated, or you do see it? We still do see it, yeah. Hmm, interesting. What about fever in this man? Yeah, I was going to get to that. So that did happen. It happened late in his course, about eight months into his course, but it did happen. And I think fevers are perhaps the side effect that is the most difficult to deal with with regard to BRAF and MEK inhibition. So for starters, it's always confusing as to what is causing the fever. So a good infectious workup is important to undertake in anybody who has a fever on BRAF and MEK inhibition. The other thing that we have tried and continue to try in patients are dose interruptions or dose reductions that can sometimes prevent the recurrence of fevers, although we've not been as successful with dose interruptions or reductions. The other thing we advise is taking NSAIDs or acetaminophen upon restarting therapy. That too is limited in its efficacy. The thing that really works though are corticosteroids. And in patients who have had a fever, who have had to briefly discontinue therapy for an infectious workup and then to allow for sort of the dust to settle so that you can then restart therapy, what we often will do is restart the BRAF and the MEK inhibitor therapy with, say, 10 milligrams of prednisone daily. This oftentimes will be effective secondary prevention for fevers, where patients can then stay on a corticosteroid at a low dose, 10 milligrams, even 5 milligrams sometimes, and be able to continue with BRAF and MEK inhibition. The other way that we've done it is to, instead of using a low-dose corticosteroid every day, is to use a higher dose in a taper over a week or so. And that high-dose taper oftentimes will sort of let things settle down to the point where the BRAF and MEK inhibition can be restarted. And then if the fever does come back, you can give the higher-dose steroid taper again. So what's this man's current situation? So he eventually progressed on therapy and in two ways. One, his pre-existing tumors grew about nine or 10 months after he started the BRAF and MEK therapy. And then secondly, he developed a brain metastasis. 
And so at that point, he was switched from BRAF and MEK inhibition to checkpoint blockade inhibition. And in combination with that, he received stereotactic radiosurgery to a brain metastasis. What kind of checkpoint inhibition did he have? He started pembrolizumab. How did he do? Well, he's only been on therapy now for about three or four months, but so far he's done well. So I asked you to pull a few cases from your practice of people who had complications from checkpoint inhibitor therapy. Maybe we can just briefly touch on what happened to these three people, beginning with your 66-year-old woman. Sure. This is a 66-year-old woman with metastatic melanoma who developed grade 3 diarrhea after three doses of ipilimumab. So she is a typical patient who, at about the point where we're accustomed to seeing it, which is after the second dose or perhaps after the third dose, developed gastrointestinal symptoms. And this is very common, especially in ipilimumab. And so I think it's important to talk about the overall approach to what are potentially immune-related adverse events and then talk about how we deal with that. So as I tell my patients, when we come across a symptom that is new when patients are on checkpoint blockade therapy, the possibility of drug-induced autoimmunity always has to be included in the differential and is essentially a diagnosis of exclusion. So in her, it was important to rule out other causes of her diarrhea. So for example, infection could certainly do that, a CMV colitis, a gastroenteritis from a virus or bacterium. Other drugs can do that. We had a gentleman recently who started on metformin in the setting of checkpoint blockade inhibition, and the metformin was the drug that was responsible for giving him diarrhea. The tumor itself can bring about these symptoms. So we've certainly had patients where the tumor that's usually present in the abdomen or wrapped itself around the bowel, et cetera, can present as diarrhea. And then other metabolic causes, too, can bring about some of these things. So after ruling out all of these possibilities with this patient, she underwent a scope. So we have consultants where we're able to call them up on short notice and say, we've got a patient who we suspect has autoimmune colitis. Could you get them in for a flex sig? for an EGD or whatever is necessary. And with a scope and some biopsies, with rapid pathologic review, we're able to say with reasonable certainty that yes, in fact, or no, this was not or was related to the immune checkpoint drug. What was going on with the tumor at that point? Well, it was too early to know whether she was going to progress or not. But as far as we could tell, there was not a locus of tumor that was causing these symptoms. So what happened? Well, initially she was, as I say, ruled out for infection and ruled out for other causes. We scoped her and in fact found that she had some gross ulcerations on exam in her colon and also that the pathologic review demonstrated histologic findings consistent with ipilimumab-related injury. So we started her on systemic corticosteroids, on prednisone, a milligram per kilogram per day of prednisone orally. We encouraged her to hydrate orally as much as she could. And then we also checked the quantiferon gold. So the quantiferon test is a tuberculosis test similar to a PPD, and it indicates whether somebody's had exposure, previous exposure to tuberculosis. And this is important particularly in this case, although we do try to check these in patients for whom steroids are going to be important. And the reason for that is because if and when these cases demonstrate that they are refractory to corticosteroid therapy, oftentimes the next drug that we use is infliximab. And infliximab can reactivate cases of tuberculosis or cases of hepatitis. And so it's important to know that somebody was PPD negative or quantiferon negative prior to having to administer the infliximab. 
So in this woman, we gave her the corticosteroids at one milligram per kilogram per day. And although she tolerated that reasonably well, when we tried to taper her down, and we do so slowly, at least over about a month's interval, when we tried to taper her down, she did not tolerate that, and her diarrhea came right back. And so it was clear that she was going to be a steroid refractory case, and in fact, she did end up requiring infliximab. We administered that at five milligrams per kilogram. We did that as an inpatient, and in combination with that, we administered pneumocystis prophylaxis as corticosteroids and infliximab can put one at risk for pneumocystis infection. What happened? Well, her diarrhea did resolve after infliximab. In fact, she required two doses of the infliximab spaced about three or four weeks apart. But after the administration of those two doses of infliximab, her diarrhea settled out, her bowels were back to normal. And we assessed her disease progress at about 12 or 14 weeks after starting ipilimumab, and unfortunately her disease had progressed. And so she went on to receive anti-PD-1. And this is a question that I get a lot about whether in the case of somebody who has had a toxicity to ipilimumab, can you then try a PD-1 blocking drug? And there's no absolute answer to that question, but in general, the autoimmune toxicities for patients getting ipilimumab don't necessarily correlate to the autoimmune toxicities that one would expect with either of the PD-1 drugs. And so in this patient, we were comfortable trying a different strategy, so switching over to PD-1 at that point. And in fact, she did well. She received pembrolizumab and has had stable disease since that time. For how long? Her therapy is now probably nine months into anti-PD-1. Hmm, interesting. So how about your 40-year-old lady? Kind of seems like people are not that tuned in to pneumonitis, except the lung people are very, very concerned about it. And lung cancer, I'm not sure how big of an issue it is, for example, melanoma. How about this 40-year-old lady? What happened? Yeah, the pneumonitis, I agree with you. It's something that's rarely seen, but unfortunately can be quite serious. And in fact, on the phase one, the large phase one trial of nivolumab that was published in the New England Journal in 2012, pneumonitis was responsible for three fatalities in that study. And so I think it's important to recognize, in fact, that it's a life-threatening autoimmune toxicity. It's also important to recognize that it can present in a highly variable fashion radiographically. So I've had several patients where they've gotten a chest X-ray or a chest CT scan, and someone said, oh, you've got a pneumonia, when in fact it was a pneumonitis that we were looking at. And so it's very difficult, if not impossible, to tell on chest radiography, either CT scan or chest x-ray, whether you're dealing with a true pneumonitis or, in fact, it's an infection. So this 40-year-old woman, she developed multifocal lung abnormalities on CT scan after having four doses of nivolumab. And we consulted our pulmonary colleagues and our infectious disease colleagues and got her a bronchoscopy. And during the bronchoscopy, they did a bronchoalveolar lavage, and they took tissue samples from affected parts of the lung. And in fact, what we found was no infectious agent, but the biopsy specimen did in fact demonstrate cryptogenic organizing pneumonia consistent with an autoimmune pneumonitis. And so she was placed on corticosteroids with eventual resolution of her pulmonary findings. Now, I must say that pneumonitis can present in a variety of ways, and it takes some very careful monitoring to really understand the pace of the pneumonitis. So on one end of that spectrum, we have seen patients where the pneumonitis, although biopsy-proven and responsive to corticosteroids, 
has really been clinically insignificant. It's strictly a radiological finding. We've also had patients where the pneumonitis has been clinically relevant, so an unremitting cough, respiratory distress, and as I mentioned on the phase one trial, can lead to fatalities. And so it really takes very close monitoring of patients where a pneumonitis or other pulmonary process is suspected. We monitor symptoms daily in these patients. Oftentimes we'll consider bringing them in for hospitalization because this can get very serious very fast. We request pulmonary and infectious disease consults to make sure that we're not dealing with a respiratory syncytial virus or other pulmonary process that has nothing to do with the drug itself. We try to get a bronchoscopy with bronchoalveolar lavage and tissue biopsies if we can. That often helps us narrow down, A, what therapy to give the person, and B, whether or not it's safe to continue with checkpoint blockade. So if this is just a respiratory syncytial virus and has nothing to do with the drug, oftentimes we'll be able to continue with PD-1 therapy cautiously, but knowing that it was an infection that caused the pulmonary issues. Also, it helps us tailor our therapy. So oftentimes when these patients come in and they have clinically relevant lung findings, we'll start empiric antibiotics and empiric corticosteroids at the same time before we have the results from the bronchoscopy back. And so in that setting, one gets the result. You can either peel off the antibiotics or peel off the steroids. Now, in this lady, it was picked up on symptoms or imaging? Well, this lady, as I described her, was picked up on imaging, but we've certainly had patients where they'll come in with an unremitting cough, for example, or shortness of breath, or their oxygen saturation will be low, and lo and behold, they'll be found to have a pneumonitis. What's her current status? Her current status is that she's a complete responder after PD-1 therapy, despite only getting a single cycle of therapy, and continues to do well. Wow. How long has it been? She is now almost three years out. Wow. Wow. That must make your day, huh, when you see her? <laughs> Yeah, well, it's really gratifying to see nice responses to these therapies, and oftentimes there, as I said, they can be durable, so that does feel good. I've heard people say they put patients like this at the end of the day so they feel better when they go home. Right, right. Well, fortunately, we have enough so that it fills up the entire day's clinic, but wow. we certainly are buoyed by patients that do well. Interesting. So how about your 73-year-old man? We heard about the issue of endocrine abnormalities, and that was his problem. Yeah, the endocrine abnormalities, I think, are challenging to diagnose because they are quite variable in their clinical appearance and their clinical presentation. And the symptoms that go along with some of the endocrinologic abnormalities can be nonspecific. So this is a 73-year-old gentleman with metastatic melanoma. He was doing well on anti-PD-1 for about two months when he developed a subacute onset of severe fatigue, some depressive symptoms, some dizziness, and a poor appetite. So he came in complaining of these things, and his wife and he both agreed that things had really taken a turn for the worse over the preceding week or two weeks, and they couldn't really pinpoint exactly what had brought this all about. We examined him and checked his labs, as we usually do, and as it turned out, his serum ACTH and his serum cortisol were both found to be very low, which supported the diagnosis of hypophysitis. And so we started this patient that day on replacement hydrocortisone therapy, and within 24 hours, he was essentially feeling back to himself. His appetite improved, his energy got better, his depression went away, his dizziness abated. And so this was an effective response to what was later found to be a hypophysitis. And I assume he had normal thyroid function? Well, his thyroid function was still normal, although if you looked at the trend of his thyroid numbers, in fact, it was changing, but it didn't change enough to make it abnormal. So it wasn't something that we flagged at the time. He did go on later to require thyroid replacement therapy. Really? Huh. 
Yeah. So what's interesting, I think, about some of these patients is the variable presentation of specifically hypophysitis, but really of any of the endocrine issues. So patients where they have been on checkpoint blockade therapy and call with a headache that won't go away or an unusual headache that's been refractory to NSAIDs or acetaminophen or what have you, that's a common presentation of a hypophysitis. And so those patients need to be seen right away. They need to get a pituitary MRI and then their pituitary thyroid adrenal axis needs to be checked by blood work. And in general, with the hypophysitis cases caught like that that are relatively early, we try to get some high-dose corticosteroids on board in the acute phase. This might prevent destruction of the gland, although and certainly that is not clear. But we try to dose them with high-dose corticosteroids and then bring down the steroid dose later such that they're on replacement, so replacement hydrocortisone. Some of the other symptoms, in fact, in this gentleman, as we discussed, they can present with fatigue or changes in weight, oftentimes weight loss or weight gain, changes in mood or behavior. So this patient felt he was depressed or felt some depressive symptoms. Sometimes the sex drive will change. Sometimes people will get forgetful or irritable. Dizziness is a common one, a common complaint that we hear from patients. And then some of the less common things, so constipation occasionally occurs, feeling cold or hair thinning, things to watch out for. So in this gentleman, as I discussed, we gave him some replacement hydrocortisone, and that really did the trick. Within 24 hours, he was feeling much better. In severe cases, though, in more severe cases, when the suspicion is for an adrenal crisis, that is really an oncologic emergency. And so what we'll see there are signs and symptoms of severe dehydration, perhaps hypotension, shock out of proportion to what a current illness would suggest. And in those cases, stress dose steroids, intravenous stress dose steroids with mineralocorticoid activity, for example, hydrocortisone or prednisone, those cases require high dose steroids and some inpatient care.